this morning. Second Samuel 7, 1 through 17. It's page 279 in the church Bible. There's a key text here. Uh, one of those one of those Old Testament texts that just has a pivotal place in Scripture and the story of Scripture. Um, it's the text in which uh, David's throne has been established. Uh, his enemies are, have been defeated. God's given him rest. And uh, the Lord tells him that he's, that he's going to make a covenant with him. That David, or uh, one of David's descendants, is going to be on this throne forever. And we are going to see that theme picked up in our New Testament text in just a minute. So, let's give our attention now to 2 Samuel 7, verses 1 through 17. These are the very words of God, loved ones. Let's give them our full attention. Now it came to pass, when the king was dwelling in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. Then Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But it happened that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David. Thus says the Lord, Would you build a house for me to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day, but have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore thus says, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you and have made you a great name like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies." Also, the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. Now, turn, if you will, to our New Testament reading, Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. It's page 849. Matthew chapter 1, 
1 through 17. This is our sermon text this morning. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab, Aminadab begot Nation, and Nation begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon begot Rehoboam. Rehoboam begot Abijah, and Abijah begot Asa. Asa begot Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat begot Joram, and Joram begot Uzziah. Uzziah begot Jotham. Jotham begot Ahaz, and Ahaz begot Hezekiah. Hezekiah begot Manasseh. Manasseh begot Ammon. Ammon begot Josiah. Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Shealtiel, and Shealtiel begot Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel begot Abiad, and Abiad begot Eliakim, and Eliakim begot Azor. Azor begot Zadok, Zagot, Zadok begot Achim, and Achim begot Eliad. Eliad begot Eleazar, Eleazar begot Mathen, Mathen begot Jacob. And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's ask his blessing on it. Lord, please now be at work in our hearts by your word. You are the one who has spoken this word. So please take this word and plant it deep in us that we might bear the fruit of eternal life. We pray that you would show us more of our Lord Jesus Christ and fill our hearts with more confidence in him and more love for him. This we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. We're starting a new series here in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, Matthew chapter 1 and 2 here start with an origins story. They start with giving us the background, the kind of the foundation, uh, some of the backstory of the main character that, that uh, is going to be at center stage here in the Gospel of Matthew. It's sort of like Batman Begins in the Batman trilogy, right? It gives you the backstory of how Batman became Batman. This is the origin story of Jesus Christ here in these first two chapters. That uh, that's, um, makes it like many other stories we might read or other biographies we might read. Often we start with a little bit of family history, a little bit of background, but this origin story that we read here is really quite unlike any other origin story because this is the origin story of the Messiah, of the Christ. That's how Matthew begins. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. 
Christ isn't his last name. It's his title. It's like the word president or the word king. It means Messiah. This is who Jesus is. He is the Messiah, the fulfillment of everything that the Old Testament has been promising for so many thousands of years. He's like the climax of the story. He is the climax of the whole story of Scripture. So, Matthew says, here's the origins of the Christ, of the Messiah. And if you're going to give the backstory, the origin story of the Messiah, who is the point of all of history, then you have to go back to the very beginning of history to tell that story. And so that's what Matthew does in his opening chapter here. In Matthew chapter 1, he goes back to the very, very beginning. The first words of the text here in Greek uh, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, are Biblos Geneseos. The book of Genesis, literally, is how you could translate that. Or you could also translate it the, the book of the genealogy, but it's the same word, Genesis. So there's a clear echo there, isn't there, that Matthew's taking us back to the very beginning, to the, to the very start of things. These words actually echo words that are in Genesis. Genesis chapter 2, verse 4 in the creation account, says this, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And then Genesis 5.1 says, this is the book of the generations, the Biblos Geneseos, the book of Genesis of Adam. So Matthew is, even as he opens his gospel here, he's saying if you're going to understand who Jesus is as the Christ, you've, not, you've got to know the backstory." all the way back to the beginning of history itself. What's happening when Christ comes is, uh, is something that's old and something that's also new. Uh, this story of Christ begins with the very story of the first creation and the first Adam. But it's not just a continuation of those things. Matthew is, is bringing them into view to say to us that this is the story of a new creation and a new Adam, the Christ that we've been waiting for. He is the fulfillment of the whole Scripture. So that's why Matthew starts his origin story here the way he does. And then he gives us a genealogy. I think oftentimes we come to a genealogy in Scripture and we're, uh, we're tempted to skim, uh, we're tempted to skip over it. Do I really need to struggle through all these names I can't pronounce for people I don't know? Um, isn't, this a bit, isn't this a bit boring and, and really irrelevant for me? Of course, that's not true. It's the Word of God. It's interesting whether we find it to be interesting or not. Now, but it's especially the case, I think, with the genealogy here in Matthew chapter 1 because what we have here in Matthew chapter 1 isn't a dry and dusty record of irrelevant information. This is really the story of Scripture itself. This family tree, this, this line that we're tracing here in Matthew chapter 1 is the story of the whole Bible. It's kind of the Reader's Digest, you know, the abridged edition that gives us a quick kind of like snapshot of the whole story of Scripture. And so it's full of drama. It's full of interest. But why does it matter to us, this genealogy. 
how is this relevant to us? Sure, maybe it's an interesting genealogy if we you know, look at the names, look at the characters here, and remember what their lives were like and the drama that surrounded them. It has some historical interest, but how is it relevant to us? So far removed from it. Well, loved ones, it is, it is deeply relevant. It is deeply personal for us because this, uh, this is our story. We are involved in this genealogy. First of all, it's the story of our problem, of our sin and our need and our fall into sin and of our place under God's curse and our, 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 our place under his, his wrath against our sin. That's, that's kind of the backdrop and the context for this whole genealogy. Right? It's the sin of Adam and, and, and the, 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 the people of God wandering from him and being brought back to him. It's the story here in this genealogy of our inability to save ourselves. So it's the story of our problem and our need. It's also the story of our Savior, the one that God has promised to be the one who will save us from our sin and save us from our need. This genealogy is the story of the only one who can, who can really bring us salvation from our sin and from the wrath of God. And so this genealogy, loved ones, should captivate us. It should, it should hold fast our attention because it begins to unpack for us, kind of like an overture to a symphony. It's, it starts to give us the big themes of who Jesus is and what Matthew is going to be telling us throughout this whole book about who Jesus is. This genealogy, to put it as simply as we can, matters for us because it's Jesus' genealogy. It tells us who he is and Jesus matters, doesn't he? We can't ignore him or believe whatever we want about him without consequence. You can do that with other historical figures, can't you? Um, Alexander the Great, Napoleon, George Washington. You can believe what you want about them. And, and yeah, maybe you're wrong, but it's not going to, to affect your eternal destiny. But it's not that way with the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior, and it makes all the difference what you believe about him. Who is Jesus? That's, that's the question Matthew is answering. He begins to answer it here in this genealogy. He's going to unpack that answer the whole rest of the gospel. And he's saying, he is the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah, who is worthy of your trust, the only one who can save you. These verses... Uh, uh, show us a few different themes that highlight for us what he means when he says Jesus is the Christ. First, he says that he is the promised seed of Abraham. That's the first big theme I want to look at together uh, in, this, in this chapter and in this genealogy. Jesus is the Christ. He's the promised seed of Abraham. Matthew introduces this right off the bat in verse 1. He identifies Jesus there as the son of David and the son of Abraham. And so Abraham functions as the anchor point in this genealogy. And when he gets to the end of the genealogy in verse 17, he says that, uh, that uh, all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. So Abraham is where he starts in this genealogy. The question is, again, well, why? What, what's, what's the importance of this? Why is it so important that Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, is Abraham's descendant? 
Well, what did God promise Abraham? Back in Genesis 12. Genesis 12, 3. God says to Abraham, In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God promises him there that it's, that it's through him, through Abraham, that he is going to bless the whole world. He is going to bless all the nations through Abraham and through Abraham's descendants. Does this happen? Do we see this happen in the Old Testament? Well, if you look at the genealogy here, it includes a few names of Gentiles. They, they stand out. Uh, Rahab, the Canaanite, is one. Um, uh, there, are, there are others. Ruth, the Moabite. Uh, Uriah, the Hittite. His wife, who would have legally been called a Hittite, is included in this genealogy. So we see kind of uh, in, in little tiny glimpses of the fulfillment of this promise. God's blessing going to all nations uh, in the genealogy here. But do we see it fulfilled? God's great blessing on all the world through the Jews. Matthew's point is that it's fulfilled in Jesus. And it's in him that Israel is embodied and represented. Jesus is true Israel, Matthew is saying. He's the seed, the promised seed of Abraham. And it's through him that the whole world will be blessed. Why is this important for us? Well, if Jesus doesn't fulfill this promise, if God doesn't keep his word to Abraham and doesn't bless the world through Jesus, true Israel, then there is no blessing. There is no salvation without this. That's what's so staggering about God's promise to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12. God speaks a word to Abraham there of blessing and life and salvation, not only for him, but for the whole sinful, idol-worshiping world. And we read that, if you read that in the context, right, of Genesis, in the story of those early chapters of Genesis, the world is under what? It's under God's curse after the fall. It's under God's wrath. But then in Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, God promises salvation, blessing, himself, and it's only in Jesus that that happens. Without this, the door to uh, God's presence remains shut. And we have no access to him. We have no salvation without Jesus being the promised seed of Abraham who, uh, who uh, opens the gates back to the Lord's presence. So Matthew announces here, Jesus is the promised seed of Abraham, who is all that Israel should have been, and he's here to open the way into God's glorious presence and to bring blessing, the blessing of God, on all the nations. And by the end of the Gospel, right, we're only in the first few verses of Matthew, but by the end of the Gospel, we're going to see how this is just exploding outwards to all the nations. The Gospel of Matthew ends with a great commission. Jesus says, Go therefore to all nations. He's commanding the disciples, he's commanding the apostles to carry this message of the blessing that has come out to all the nations. Because he's the promised seed of Abraham. Not only is the Lord Jesus the promised seed of Abraham through whom we are blessed and saved, but he's also the royal son of David. That's the second big theme in this genealogy, in these opening verses, Jesus is the royal son of David. This is how Matthew starts his gospel. 
Uh, right off the bat again, verse 1, he says, Jesus Christ, Son of David. Let's see, that's how he identifies him. And that title, Son of David, shows up a lot as the Gospel goes on. It shows up in chapter 1 here. It'll show up in chapter 9, 12, 15, 20, 21, and 22. This is a title that Matthew likes to use for Jesus. He uses it a lot, and it, it, it has a large role here in this opening section, because David is, is uh, without a doubt, the most important uh, figure in, in, in uh, Jewish history as they think about the Messiah. They're looking for another anointed one. That's what the word Messiah means. Someone who's been anointed by the Spirit to fulfill uh, the promises that God has made of a king who will shepherd his people. And Matthew centers in on this here. If Abraham was the anchor of this genealogy, David is kind of the center point or the hinge. Um, We see this in the way the genealogy is actually structured. If you look at verse 17, Matthew has this curious point that he makes. The, The generations, he says, from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David to the exile, 14 generations. And from the exile to the Christ, 14 generations. Why 14? This is puzzled. Uh, this has puzzled commentators and people write different things and take different opinions on it. But mine is uh, uh, in line with, with quite a few other commentators that what Matthew is doing by pointing out these 14 generations is again highlighting the significance of David and God's promises to David. Uh, the, the number 14, if you, if you look at David's uh, name in Hebrew and you look at the, the numerical value for each letter of his name, it adds up to 14. This is, a, this is a practice in ancient Hebrew. You used letters to represent numbers. And if you add up the numbers of David's name, it equals 14. And I think Matthew is saying David is at the center here. And God's promise to David is at the center here. What's that promise? We read it earlier. It's in 2 Samuel 7. God promise, promises David that he will have a son on the throne who reigns forever. There'll be a king from David's line, from his own body, God says, who will reign forever. We, we see Solomon, of course, comes right after David, and he has a reign of peace uh, over Israel. And in many ways, he looks like the fulfillment of this promise, at least in part. But then he falls into sin, and he dies. And, and so the people of Israel are looking for a king to come who's going to fulfill this promise, who's going to sit on the throne forever. And of course, we go through generation after generation of failure and sin, and, and, and finally the exile. The people come back from exile, and they're still tracing out the family line, but there's no kingdom. There's no real kingdom. And then Matthew announces here that this Christ has finally come. The son of David has finally come. That he'll reign forever. That this king is here. That message would have... Uh, would have gone off like a flare in a dark night in, uh, at, at this time. Uh, the people were, uh, were waiting expectantly for a Messiah. They were looking for a king to come. They weren't looking for the kind of king Jesus was going to be. They wanted the king who would come and give them political power and political might and free them from Rome. Uh, but, but they're eager, they're waiting for a king to come. They've been waiting for a long time. They're wondering, where are the promises of God that he will make this king and his kingdom the greatest kingdom in the world to which all the other nations bring tribute and praise and honor? Where is this king? And then Matthew announces, this king, he's come. 
What about for us? I said this, this message shook, shook the world. It shook ancient Israel as they hear this proclaimed. What about for us? Well, we're a lot farther removed again. And it's, I think, harder for us to appreciate the significance and the weight of what it means that Jesus is David's son. But again, if we look at the end of this gospel, Matthew 28, we see the same thing happening that happened with Abraham, the promise about Abraham. We see the whole gospel is bookended here by this. We see in Matthew 28, what's it say? All authority in heaven and on earth is given to me, Jesus says. That's his kingdom. He's saying, I've done it. I've fulfilled it. God has given me the kingdom. It's going to last forever. I have authority over all of heaven and all of earth. And loved ones, that bears very much on us, doesn't it? Christ is the King. His kingdom is going to last forever. Here's two things that it means for us, dear ones. First, it means that Jesus is the King. That means that we have to submit to Him. He is the King. And as King, He has complete authority over you and over me. Every aspect of your life. There's no part of your life that you can say, well, Lord, I'll I'll submit to you in that aspect. I'll be there Sunday morning, but in my work or in my recreation, my free time, my downtime, that's mine. My family, that's mine. Uh, my, my relationships, my marriage, you know, that's, that doesn't belong to you, Jesus. That's mine. But loved ones, he's the king who has absolute authority. And he demands absolute obedience, total submission to him. He does it. We see it all through the Gospels, right? Follow me. Leave everything and follow me, he says. He is the king. He demands our worship. As we'll see in just a few, uh, a few weeks' time, the wise men, the magi, coming and bowing down before him. That's the call of King Jesus, the command of King Jesus on every single one of us. Total submission to his total authority. Second thing, Jesus' kingship means it means he will defeat all the enemies of the people of God. This is what we see so uh, wonderfully in David is that God uses him so mightily to give the people peace from all the enemies they face. We see it in David uh, doing battle with Goliath. Goliath represents the seed of the serpent. Satan himself, he represents that there. And David brings him down with a stone and then cuts off his head. In a a picture of the fulfillment of the promise God made to Eve way back in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman would crush the seed of the serpent. We see a picture of it in David, but we see the reality in our Lord Jesus Christ. As he comes and he crushes the serpent's head by his death, by his obedience, by his resurrection. as As he defeats death itself for our sakes. So, yes, the kingship of Christ means much to us. It means that all the enemies of God's people, all our enemies, are under His authority. Let that sink in. Think about that for a moment. What are the enemies? What are the things that we might be tempted to fear as the people of God? The powers of Satan. Temptation to sin. They're under Christ's authority. He's crushed them. He's defeated them. Yes, they continue to have influence, but they don't have authority over us. Christ is our King who has defeated them. What about the the, the evil forces of the world, the things in this world that are set against Christ and His church? What about for our brothers and sisters 
in, in countries where the government is so set against Christ and his kingdom, so outwardly oppressing it. They have this confidence Christ is our king, he has all authority. And we know that the powers of this present world are nothing compared to his power. They're doing his bidding. And it's only a matter of time till they're brought down. What about death? What about all the, 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 the long prelude up to death, of the, the sicknesses and the, the, the weaknesses, the infirmities we feel in this life? We fear those things, don't we? Sickness, Alzheimer's, cancer, all these things, death itself. What about all these things? Has Christ defeated them too? Yes, he has. He himself has risen from the dead and he has, he has brought us to life to share in his resurrection life. He's planted the seed of resurrection life in us so that even as our outward bodies are wasting away, the seed of eternal life is starting to bloom and one day it will blossom and we'll live forever with him, free of all these things, forever. Jesus is the king. This is what it means for us. So Jesus is the promised seed of Abraham through whom the whole world is blessed. Jesus is the promised, the royal son of David uh, who demands our submission and has also defeated all our enemies. And finally now, Jesus is the savior of sinners. This is the last theme I want to pay attention to in the text here. Jesus is the Savior of sinners. We saw already that the genealogy here contains in really short, condensed form the whole storyline of Scripture. Many of the great heroes of the Bible are here in this genealogy. But as we read this genealogy, we also see it's not just the great heroics and the great faith that stand out, but it's actually often the sin of these people that Matthew seems to be highlighting. This is not a genealogy that uh, I would want to show anybody. This is, not a, this is not a family history I'd be proud of. But this, is a, this is, in many ways, a family history of sin and failure and unfaithfulness. Look, look at Abraham. He starts off the genealogy. We know him for his great faith. But before he's called, what is he? Before God you know, calls him out, he's a moon worshiper, an Ur, an idol worshiper, lost in sin, lost in unbelief. And then, even after God calls him to himself, he continues to doubt. He continues to struggle to believe God's promises to him. He, he lies to save his own skin, even at the harm of his wife. How about Jacob? The trickster, the cheat, the liar, the one who's just in it for himself to get something out of it for himself. We go on through this genealogy. What about Judah? He's an adulterer. Not an example of great faith, really. The text mentions that he, uh, he bears Perez by Tamar. That's his daughter-in-law. You can read the sordid story over in Genesis. It's not a sort of story you want in your genealogy. We go on in the text that mentions Rahab, a Canaanite prostitute. It mentions Ruth, who is a Moabite. The Moabites were people, uh, their origin story is the story of Lot and his daughters, if you know that story. They're cursed to the tenth generation. And, and Ruth the Moabite is in his genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. David is mentioned. We've seen, uh, you know, God's promise to David. David's a man after God's own heart. But this text reminds us 
uh, without flinching, that David had Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And you know that story. How he committed adultery. How he had Uriah murdered. Solomon, what about him? He's in the genealogy. He had wife after wife after wife, and they led his heart away to worship false gods. How about Rehoboam? His arrogance splits the kingdom. His pride and his stubbornness and his self-will breaks the kingdom in half. And we could go on and on and on through this genealogy, looking at person after person. And yes, there's glimmers of God's gr- there's, there's much of God's grace at work. We see glimmers of faith, and we see uh, moments of, uh, of faithfulness in the members of this family tree. But there is so much sin here. So much worshiping of false gods. This is not a family history that you would be proud of. And yet it is Christ's family history. Why does Matthew include this? Why does Matthew even highlight the sinfulness of those in this story? Well, first, I think, is to show the wonderful condescension and humility of our Savior. Matthew hasn't pulled back the curtain on this quite yet. He gives us a hint about it when he says that Jesus is born of the wife of Joseph, not Joseph Joseph himself there at the end of our text. He's going to tell us soon that Jesus is born of a virgin and that he's Emmanuel, God with us. But, But even now, as he's giving us this genealogy, I think he's showing us the condescension of Christ, who is the eternal Son of God, who picks this family tree to come and be born a part of. Jesus was not ashamed of this genealogy. He condescended to be born born of a woman, born of a sinful family tree. It's great humility. It shows us his love, his condescension. The second thing we see here, of course, is his grace for sinners. Jesus didn't come for the righteous. He didn't come to save those who are faithful and upright and don't, don't mess up. He comes for the sinners. He comes for the needy. He didn't come as a king who's looking for good people to serve him. He comes as the king who's humbling himself to die for sinners and serve sinners. He came to bring forgiveness of sins. And this genealogy is Matthew's way of shouting this message at the very start of his gospel. Jesus came for sinners. And I think it's a message that Matthew himself would have been particularly uh, uh, grateful for. Because who's Matthew? Who's our author here of this gospel? He's a tax collector. A sinful tax collector. One of the despised, lowest uh, positions you could have. Uh, he's he's uh, identified with sinners. He's hated. But Jesus comes and he picks Matthew, the tax collector, to follow him. So this is where Matthew begins, loved ones. This is how he starts by, to answer that question for us. Who is Jesus? He's the Christ. The one through whom God will bless the world and bring salvation to all nations. The one who is the king, the son of David, who is demanding our total allegiance and who has conquered all our enemies. And he's also, Matthew is saying, the savior of sinners. Sinners like you, sinners like me. He calls us to himself. Come and find salvation. Loved ones, won't you trust this savior? Won't you commit yourself wholeheartedly to love and trust and follow Jesus the Messiah? Let's pray together. Lord, we are so grateful that you've sent Christ, the Messiah, our Lord Jesus, 
Give us faith in Him, confidence in Him, submission to Him. We pray it for His dear sake. Amen.